Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Welcome back to The Driven Entrepreneur one more time. If you're brand new to the show, I just want to welcome you. I'm super, super excited that you're here with us today. Hey, make sure you check out our back catalog. If you're listening live right now on the radio, go anywhere where you find podcasts, The Driven Entrepreneur, and there are back episodes, hundreds of them, no paywall, totally free, some amazing, amazing interviews, just like this week. Now, I am going to get into the mind this week of... Not a comedian, although we're going to talk about comedy. We're going to get into the mind of a comedy producer. We're going to get into the mind of a promoter. Now, I would identify myself in the entrepreneur space as a promoter as well. I've been producing live events for the last 15 years in seminars, conferences, uh, in a teaching, coaching aspect. And But I haven't done a lot of entertainment events. And our next guest has done a ton of entertainment events. So my question for you, pay attention, is what do Jay Leno, Dana Carvey, Bob Saget, and Gary Shandling all have in common? Well, they've all worked for Mr. Scott Edwards, my guest this week. He's been the owner of a chain of comedy clubs and has worked with the very, very best and has a ton of firsthand experiences we're going to share. Um, super excited about this. He uses communication entrepreneur skills uh, that he's learned over the years to grow his company to 125 employees. Plus, he's a little bit of a serial entrepreneur with a couple of restaurants, art galleries, and even a submarine. Am I reading that right? A submarine? Well... It's been quite a ride for him. Scott, welcome to the show, man. How are you? Hey, great, Matt. It's uh, exciting to be here. I've been listening to your shows, man. You rock it out there. You've had great guests. You uh, share important information. And just to be on here, it's uh, very exciting. And yes, it was a submarine. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, we can't really go much further than that, bud. So we got to start with the submarine. Um, how and when did you get your hands on a submarine? I think why is probably the first question I think of. <laughs> Well, unlike a couple of your other uh, guests, I, as a serial entrepreneur, had an itch, and I would open up uh, some type of new business every year, and I was operating my chain of comedy clubs, and I was doing really well. We caught that uh, magic comedy wave in 1980. Uh, when I first opened my club, it was the 12th, 12th comedy club in the entire United States. And by about six years later, there were like Starbucks on every corner. So 12? I did pretty well. Like one, two? Yeah, yeah. What state were you in? in the country. California. Whoa. I had yeah. no idea. 1980 was it that rare. This yeah, wasn't there a thing. Was, there was the Comedy Store and the Improv in L.A. There was a couple clubs in San Francisco, one in Boston, uh, the, um, and then a couple uh, Catch a Rising Star in New York, and then me, Laughs Unlimited. And we uh, did well, made some money, and I invested in a company called uh, Subsea Systems, and they have Snuba, S-N-U-B-A. It's an underwater snorkeling thing all over the world, uh, still involved in that, very fun business. But the owners, um, uh, this was about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, decided, hey, we could do a submarine, tourist submarine and I helped him build the first one, and we launched it in Hawaii. It was very successful. It was called the Nautilus One. And I said, you know, I want to own one of those. 
and I got some people together and we built another submarine and we launched it in Monterey, California, which is a great place. There's a beautiful aquarium there. Always lots to see otters and sea seals and sea lions. However, it's also very cold water. And it turned out, even though we gave it about a year and a half, that was one of my big losing companies because there was an algae bloom issue that blocked the windows and we'd have to pay a diver um, to keep the windows clean all the time. And it just got too expensive. The submarine was eventually sold to the Wrigley family from Wrigley Gum, and they still operate it in Catalina, uh, an island off of uh, Los Angeles. Yeah, so that was I've, I've my... scuba on Catalina. I actually just golfed there a couple months ago. <laughs> oh, so you know what I'm talking about. Oh, there's yeah. A, there's a submarine called the Nautilus Two that uh, runs out of uh, Catalina, and that used to be mine. That was yours. Used to run in Monterey, California, but it was one of my big failures. But boy, what a lot of fun! Yeah, well, and what a story! Like, I don't know how how many people have you met that have owned a submarine? Maybe more than I have because I'm at about one right now. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I I think I know four. Yeah, but, uh, it was uh, one of those things that uh, seemed like a lot of fun. What was nice about the money I made at Laps Unlimited, it allowed me to do other things that I had an itch and a creative uh, angst to do. So I opened a couple restaurants. Um, I had a couple art galleries. Uh, and one of the more fun, successful things was for a couple, about five and a half, six years, I owned a beach shack on the big island of Hawaii. And which, so what that was great was I could fly to Hawaii, hang out on the beach with all the semi-clad bikini girls, and it was a tax write-off. <laughs> Everybody's dream. Everybody yes, it was a vacation. Uh, yeah, definitely. And and uh, so it was things like that, that the success of Laughs Unlimited allowed me to do. How old were you the last time you got a paycheck from someone besides, you know, you or your own companies? Um, there was um, about 12 years ago and for a period of about eight years after the comedy clubs and a travel agency and a few other things. I actually, um, my wife wanted a little financial stability in my life. And even though I was on commission, I, really I was getting a salary plus commission from the Ford Motor Company. I was a fleet director. Wow. So, That's a departure uh, that was, a little bit. Yeah, that was, uh, um, my whole thing, Matt, was customer service. Ever since I, my first company when I was 17, my gift to the world is I'm really good at sales and customer service. And the secret there is to uh, uh, ask the right questions and then shut up and listen. And uh, that led to a lot of success, including um, with the Ford Motor Company as a fleet director. Where do you think the skill set of listening got developed in you? Was this something that you kind of always just were good at, like a musical ear? Or is it something that maybe growing up with, you know, mom or dad or, you know, the environment, did you have to adapt and learn to be a good listener? Where do you think I came from? You know, that's a good question, Matt, and the first time it's been asked. So I appreciate that. <laughs> I uh, came I from listen. a family. I'm sorry. I, I listen. Yeah, yeah, right. Good for you. I came from a broken family. My parents divorced when I was 10. There was some pressure to uh, bring some money into the family. So I was working from about uh, age 12 on my first outside, you know, paycheck job. I was 15. And it was in those early days, I was working pizza parlors. And back then they weren't nice big family places. They were basically bars that sold food. And I was surrounded by older people. And in that day and age, to date myself, a lot of uh, Vietnam vets. 
Um, I was uh, old enough to be in the draft for two years, but luckily I didn't have to go to Vietnam. But I was working with a lot of the uh, vets, and they always had stories and always talked about uh, the importance of, you know, making something yourself. And I listened to those stories and, and been listening ever since. A quick example, Matt, if you don't mind, my first company was called a Restripe. I was 17 years old, and I overheard I was a night janitor at a motel. I was cleaning toilets and buffing floors, and I overheard two guys in the bar talking about striping parking lots on the weekends for extra cash. And I immediately went out and went to the Yellow Pages, which for people uh, under 50, that was a big book where you'd find companies. Um, I would go out and um, talk to the owners of other striping or or, uh, construction companies and ask them how they got into business, what they charged, and what they did. And people love talking about themselves. It makes them feel like a success. And I just soaked that all in. Got a couple buddies, and we opened up our own small construction company when we were 17, and uh, that company is still operating today. So it was um, back then that I realized that uh, I didn't know everything. I didn't go to college. I wasn't a good student. Uh, If I was going to learn, it was going to be from others. So when you say learn from others, you're talking peers, friends, people that have been successful before you. You start – so when you were young – and this is where I kind of go with this too. When you were even younger than 17, you, you talked about kind of, you know, that entrepreneur itch as a teenager. What were you like as a young kid? You know, everyone dreams to be something usually. For me, I wrote a note when I was six. Some of my audience have heard this. I want to run away from home to be an ice cream man because I figured <laughs> I can't imagine a better job than that, right? Literally work and live. I thought they lived inside the ice cream truck. And then the next one I wanted to do was to own Toy City, like a Toys R Us, because I thought, again, what a great you know business to have. Um, but that was what I wanted to do when I was a kid. What were you dreaming of when you were a kid? Did you think you'd own a business or do something like that? Or were you on a track to you know, go to college or be an accountant yeah, I, or something? Like I said, I came from kind of a lower middle class family, so the goal was to go to college. And for, I'm not even sure where it came from, but my dream at those ages, six and eight and 10, I was always working towards and reading about being an oceanographer. Mm. I just um, loved the idea of the ocean and didn't know anything about it. And I thought that would be a great way to uh, make a living on the sea. The problem was I was growing up in Sacramento, which couldn't be any more landlocked. Right, right. <laughs> So um, no experience near the ocean. Uh, since then, I've become a, a certified diver and, and, as you know, owned a submarine and got involved in snuba. So I've been around the ocean a lot uh, as an adult. But as a kid, it was more just a uh, dream. Reading and, the books and seeing it on television and that kind of thing. Right. I would research it. in, in um, Kids, there wasn't know, any YouTube back then. If you're watching this right now on YouTube, there, he wasn't watching YouTube videos? No? No, there was nothing. There was some black and white TV and some books. Uh, the, the World Book Encyclopedia, for anybody that uh, remembers. But uh, the listening part, I think, was... Um, you know, maybe God's gift to me to survive. It wasn't mm-hmm. something I thought about. It kind of just came naturally. Um, I did, my dad wasn't around, so I was uh, didn't really have any mentors. I was kind of forging my own path. 
And uh, I want to share something with your listeners because these are all entrepreneurs. There's really no original ideas out there. Now, that sounds really harsh, but what I have found is that there's somebody out there doing what you want to do. And if you want to do it, go for it and find those people, ask them about it, shut up and listen, and then do it. So when it comes to comedy, when you opened up the club and it was, you know, the 12th club in the United States, there was only 12 of them. Did you have promoter mentors? Did you have someone that you had met or found? Was there, is it like a good old boys club back then? Is there an association? How do you get involved moving forward um, with owning a comedy club? Or is it, you know, was that your own advice? Or did you just go, you know what, screw it, I'm going to start it. And you rented the space and you, you know, figured it out as you went. What was no, the story no, it, it, I, I'm following the same path of the other companies I opened, Matt. What I did was I was uh, uh, on vacation in Los Angeles. My uh, dad had a great sense of humor and he said, hey, you got to go check out this place called the Comedy Store. They had a little satellite room by UCLA in Westwood, California. And um, I was on vacation with my then girlfriend, soon to be wife, soon to be ex-wife. And we went into the uh, comedy club and comedy was not really known at the time. Like I said, there was just a few clubs in the whole country. And I had a blast. I saw Dave Coulier from Full House. I saw Sandra Bernhardt, a number of other acts. And I had so much fun. I said to myself, Sacramento, which is where I'm from, needs this, needs this entertainment. This is this is exciting and fun. So I stayed after the show and asked questions and started talking to the comics and collecting phone numbers, came back to Sacramento and quit my job. And I went bankrupt and cleared my financial deck and then went back down to LA and did what I just told you. I went to a couple comedy clubs. I met the managers or the owners and I asked a lot of questions. I met other comics. Uh, Dave Coulier was nice enough to introduce me to Bob Saget. Now is that uncle Joey? Is that who Dave is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joey the house. He introduced me to Bob Saget. Shout out to Dave. And then uh, he introduced me to Gary Shandling, who introduced me to George Wallace. And it went on and on. And what was interesting was one of the reasons I had such a success with Laughs Unlimited is that the comics, these comics that are now famous, they weren't famous then, Sure, were my mentors. I asked them, what makes a good comedy club? Oh, well, you want it to look like this and, and you want to start the shows like this. Well, what do I pay the comics? Well, you know, they're all as much as you can. (laughs) Right. They would all say, well, they're going to want as much as they can. But they knew that I was sincere and that I was going to be opening up a business that would eventually make them money. So they gave me honest advice. You know, you could get an opening act for 100, 150 bucks a week and a headliner. You're maybe paying 800 a week. Uh, this was back in the 80s. So um, they were they were really my guides, my mentors. And I think one of the things that made me such a success was they taught me that if, to be a really successful club, respect the talent, right? A lot of these clubs treated the comics like this week's meat, right? Just, you know, coming through and didn't give them any respect. And I looked at each of these guys as a gift. Man, you've got this talent. And for a couple bucks, you're willing to let me share that talent to my audience. Man, you know, thank you so much. And I treated him well and I put him up in nice places. Um, I I didn't pay him great. (laughs) I was pretty cheap. 
but I treated him well. And that brought people back. Um, Jerry Seinfeld was working for me uh, regularly and he had to cancel because he got a TV show called the Seinfeld Chronicles turned out uh, to be the Seinfeld show. And um, he liked and respected me so much that after he did the first season of the Seinfeld Chronicles, he had, because he had canceled the date, he came back and worked for the same money that I had contracted him for eight months earlier before he was on TV Wow! to make up for the gig that he owed me. And here is this lowly club in Sacramento. I've got the star of this TV sitcom on my stage and I was paying him, you know, a couple grand instead of, you know, he gets probably 50 grand a show now. So, wow. um, Jerry, uh, always, uh, I respected Jerry. He respected me. And uh, that's the kind of guy he was. He came well, back and worked for the money he negotiated. Well, let's see what, what a great story and plug for, for a guy like Seinfeld too, you know, to say, I'm guessing this wasn't an isolated incident. You know, it's not, I'm, I'm guessing this wasn't the only club that he ever behaved that way with. Um, can you speak a little bit to reputation? Now you, I've booked a lot of speakers on my seminars and stages over the years, and you've booked probably 10 times more comics and different talents on your stages. Um, could you speak a bit to reputation and kind of that, that talent promoter relationship? Um, what I really enjoyed what you said was you listened to the talent and you treated them with respect and value. I think no matter what business you're in, whether it's your team members, your volunteers, your interns, uh, even your clients to that point, you know, there's a piece about listening and, and gaining knowledge from them. But it can also go on the other side. It can go too far, you know, where if you're only listening to talent, right? What should I pay people? Oh, you know, you could, you could have talent tell you, well, you should give them all guaranteed contracts, this much money. And if you're only listening to your students, well, you should have the comfiest chairs and you should have the gourmet food and, you know, and maybe you should. But I guess my point is when you're only listening to one source, it can be a little one-sided. How did you balance out, um, I guess my original question about reputation, right? When choosing which talent to bring and then the follow-up is how did you balance out feedback and, and listening to talent versus kind of the other side of maybe the promoter side or, you know, balancing their feedback? Well, those are two questions, Matt, that Correct. are really, Sorry about that. No, it's really <laughs> important stuff. Um, first off, as I mentioned, I did go to the comics and asked them, you know, what, what makes a club successful to you? What, am, what do I need to do to succeed? Because I was a kid. I was 24 years old at the time. And um, I'd own, owned a couple companies, but I had not been in entertainment. And I'm not per se a funny guy. I'm a businessman. And um, what I did is I listened to the comics, but I also talked to other club owners and club managers. And that gave me that perspective of both sides. And what was interesting about the relationships that you asked about is that as much as I was, quote unquote, their friend, um, they never forgot that I was their boss. And that's what's interesting is that when you hold the purse strings and you own the company, even when you have a Jay Leno or a Harry Anderson or a Yakov Smirnoff or a Pat Paulson is experienced and they were older than me, um, famous people, um, they know that for the week that they're working for me, I'm paying them, I'm their boss. And so I'm respecting them, but they know, and I made it clear, uh, 
I'm, I'm in charge. And so there's kind of a mutual respect. I'm respecting them for their talents and who they are and what they bring to my audience. But they're respecting the fact that if they don't do what I want, they're not getting paid. <laughs> and, and so that's, that's a bit of a hammer. When it comes to the various types of people and who to listen to and who not to, you're absolutely correct that it, you don't want to let people walk over you. So what I always say is ask the right questions, listen to the answers, but ultimately as a business owner, it's your decision. It's your butt on the line. So you have to take all this information you gathered in and balance it with your own sensibilities, your own um, morals, your own um, goals, and decide what's the right path to take. That may be too long uh, uh, of an answer, but it really um, is important to build a relationship, whether it's a customer, a prospect, or a, a comic. Um, you want to build a relationship of mutual respect. And um, when once you have that, uh, you can make things work. I can give you a great example of when it doesn't work. I'm sure you've heard of uh, Bill Maher. Oh, yeah. The uh, famous political comic. Uh, very talented guy. Very successful. Could uh, buy and sell me 10 times over. Uh, very rich and wealthy at this point. But back in the day, Bill Maher was working for me. And uh, basically, yeah, he was an ass. And um, he went on stage uh, on a Wednesday night and disrespected my audience and told them they were stupid because he was talking this highfalutin political stuff about D.C. and throwing out names of politicians. And the audience was like, like I don't even it's not funny because I don't know who you're talking about. Exactly. So I don't watch the news. <laughs> right. So he's he stops halfway through his set tells them how stupid they are and what a cow town Sacramento is. And he walks off stage. And I got to tell you, he lost their respect. He lost my respect. And I fired his butt right then and there and sent him home without his pay. I mean, I paid him for the two nights he worked. But um, there's a guy that is very talented, uh, makes a lot of money. He's way more successful than me. But at the time, he forgot that he was there for the audience. The audience wasn't there for him. And that um, led me to fire him. And coincidentally, Matt, he was one of only two people in the 21 history of my three clubs that I ever fired. He was one of, you said the only one or one of three? One of two. One of two. Wow. You so know, two people in the history of uh, three clubs, you know, a show six nights a week, two on the weekends. You're talking thousands and thousands of shows, hundreds and hundreds of comics. And Bill Maher was only one of two guys that got his butt fired midweek because he forgot his place. Wow. I mean, that's, that's pretty strong to say. Now, what level of fame at that point? Is he not famous yet? Or he does known, he have a little bit of cloud? Is, is he on the way? Yeah, he had already done some TV, but he didn't have his own show. You know, he's sure. had his own show since. And and I, he's and I, as I preface this, he's very funny and he's a very talented guy and he's incredibly smart. But there's a point where you were talking about what are these people like? personality wise and he was just arrogant and um it didn't fit the type what's great was i was the boss if i didn't like you and i didn't want to work with you guess what i don't have to <laughs> it's good to be the king well and you know especially early on right when this is supply and demand too comics are upcoming there's a lot more than 12 yet there's only 12 comedy clubs 
So I'm guessing in the beginning, would it make sense that you had a little bit more of the pick of the litter, so to speak? And tell me about how did that start changing over the years, right? You said 21 years in comedy. How did the business evolve and change from a promoter's standpoint? Well, it's a good question. Again, Matt, uh, you, you seem to know your work. Um, hey, I, I told you, I don't think we were on or off air, but I, uh, I respect stand-up comedy so much. That's one of the reasons why I'm so excited to have you on. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. Um, I made a point. So it, when you think about any career, whether it's a lawyer, a doctor, or, or a construction guy, there's a path. You know, you, you, you start off in the beginning and you're getting education at college or high school and, and then junior college and then college. And then you go into a master's program and maybe you become this or that in the entertainment world, you have these small kind of open mic clubs, um, bars that let you get on stage and do three minutes. And that that's like going to high school. Right. And then you have the discos that converted into um, comedy clubs and they had comedy maybe two nights a week and it wasn't really run professionally. And that's like maybe going to junior college, but you're getting on stage, you're learning your craft. Um, I decided early on that I was going to be what's called an A room. So an A level room, the headliners were all already professionals. They were making good money. Uh, they were expected to fill 45 minutes to an hour of time on stage, which is a lot. It is a uh, lot. Ever, yeah. You ever try to go on stage and fill three minutes? Imagine doing uh, an hour. Sure. And, I mean, three to five minutes could be several bits, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, on a laps per minute ratio when you're trying yep. to get, you know. Uh, Explain to us laps per minute real quick. Sorry? Explain to everyone laps per minute real quick. And, and, and does that matter really? Or is it just a thing you learn in school? <laughs> laughs per minute is a guide that comics use when, as writers that if they write a five minute bit or a two minute bit or a one minute bit, they want to get so many laughs per minute. And you, it's just a loose guide as a producer. It wasn't something that was uh, extremely important to me as long as they presented the end result, which is an entertained audience. Sure. Um, I'll give you two quick examples uh, someone like Stephen Wright, right. uh, who would just go up and it was just joke, 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 joke. He would do uh, five jokes in a minute, you know, or very short setups, very short right. punchlines. Then you had one of the most talented and I think my most favorite comic and I've worked with thousands, uh, very talented comic actors names Larry Miller. If you were to Google him, you'd go, oh, him. He's done over uh, hundreds of movies. Very, very funny guy. But when, as a stand-up comic, and he's out of New York, he could tell a 20-minute story. And the laughs per minute weren't that high, but people were riveted for the story, laughing every few minutes. And then at the end, huge explosion of laughter because of his presentation. So there's two examples that were both very successful but the laughs per minute ratio was really different. It's like a lot of jobs. It's what you bring in the end result that uh, really matters. Uh, going back to the uh, scenario, I was in a room. And then if you were really good in an a room, you might get seen at the comedy store or the improv in LA and a TV producer or director might pick you, give you what I call the golden ticket and offer mm -hmm. you a sitcom. So I looked at Laughs Unlimited as kind of the college of entertainment. We were prepping you 
to stardom. That's amazing. And I, I, I don't want to go on without mentioning this. The A room, this is – I talk in, in entrepreneur coaching a lot about what I call the jewelry store effect. So you can make a necklace, and it's an amazing necklace, and it's the same quality as your competitor's necklace. But the case that you put it in tells the people how much value there is. Did you put it in Walmart's case or Tiffany's case? In your case – we're talking, you know, is, is like B room, C room, A room, or whatever the terms are. Did you just decide in the beginning, I'm going to build an A room comedy clubs? I'm That means that dictates my decision making, right? If you follow me on this, like what kind of curtains will we have? What do our chairs look like? You know, you're going to probably go a little higher level table, a little higher level drink menu, et cetera, et cetera. Is this something you just decide and then fulfill or is it something in the industry you have to kind of work your way into? Like, would you have, looking back, do high school, community college, metaphorically, and then get into an A room? Or do you just decide, I'm going to make an A room, damn it, because I'm going to make it? Yeah, I, I made the decision early on that I wanted to present uh, A-level comedy when I first started, I had uh, I had no money. I had negotiated the use of a restaurant banquet room for free for the first uh, year just to get to learn and to start my company. And what made it an A room was that I fell into, quite accidentally, people like Dave Coulier, Bob Saget, Jerry Seinfeld, and, and uh, Gary Shandling, people like that. And they made my room an A room because the level of quality of the comedy that I was presenting. However, after a year and a half in that banquet room, I built and designed my own full-time comedy club. And that's where I had the ability to build a club that was as good. And I think in many cases better than even the clubs in LA were at the time, because it was built for comedy. It wasn't a converted disco or a converted bowling alley sure. or banquet room. I built a club to present the best comedy in the best box, as you said, uh, best display that I could. That's amazing. I, I just love the you know the ability to just go after the target market and decide what grade you're going to be. I think that applies to so many business owners. Um, you know, take landscaping, right, or pick you know random whatever industry, and you decide. You know, do you want to mow? mansions or do you want to mow you know the the small rinky dink houses and I, I just can't tell you how many times and you've probably seen this you know entrepreneurs they kind of almost complaining in a way and there's not enough business or my clients don't have enough money and what they don't realize is they're actually catering to a particular demographic and sometimes it's as easy as decide who you want to cater to, build your business and your your culture and your values and, and your value proposition around that, and then just go to town. Now, it's important that if you build an A-room comedy club, you got to fill it with talent. You got to fill it with some famous headliners. You, know, you need to actually deliver the goods. Um, how important is recognition, meaning like an A-list name, versus just good talent like what would you rather have would you rather have an a-list talent or an a-list name that is pretty darn good or would you rather have like raw talent that's hilarious and the audience loves but no one knows who they are uh that's a great question matt uh in comedy is is my world of influence was the time 
there were um, a group of entertainers that had already gotten the golden ticket or were already quote unquote name acts. Yep. And yes, I made a point of bringing in a known name um, about once a quarter, about every three months just to keep to get the free press it was good for advertising and in the audiences it brought in new people every time but i found my success came from developing apps so you build talent right for every robin williams and in gary shandling or pat paulson out there there's uh 10 guys that are really funny that just didn't get that golden ticket that doesn't mean they're not hilarious they they can do an hour of material the audience leaves exhausted and and full of joy and what i would do is and this was different than a lot of clubs at the time i would bring those guys in every few months so that they built an audience in my club so that when i marketed them the people that are already saw them would tell their friends hey this guy steve bruner is clean and funny and and better than anybody you've seen on tv uh, you got to come see him. Well, no one's heard the name Steve Bruner. Sure. But if you saw him, then you'd tell your friends and your friends would tell their friends and you're building an audience. And after a couple of years, Steve Bruner would, or I would put out his name in advertising or he would build his own list and send out, Hey, I'm going to be at laughs unlimited on this yep. date. And guess what? We're sold out. So, so creating a headliner and I wish we had time to get into this as well. I think it's so fascinating. Remember I said, the other industry I respect so much is pro wrestling and people always look at me sideways. Like, how do you respect that? And it's like, well, they work harder than just about anybody, but it, it's such an art when you look at the promoter aspect, which I really, I get into kind of wrestling history and you watch, you know, the Hulk Hogan's or the John Cena's or the Stone Cold Steve Austin's or the rocks. The rock was homegrown. Stone Cold Steve Austin was homegrown. They weren't headliners until they were right. Somebody right. had to put them out as a no name talent and build them. And it's cool to see that you've kind of, you've do, you do both. But you definitely would lean more towards that homegrown talent. I do the I same you, thing with speakers at seminars. I love it. I think it's brilliant, Scott. I got a great story for you. So I was got the chance to work with a young comic who could do impressions, was very funny uh, out of the Bay Area. His name was Dana Carvey. I, I think he, I heard of him. Yeah, he's been around. And uh, he was a uh, – I uh, worked him regularly. He first started off as a uh, featured act, worked into being a headliner. Uh, he was very funny, so he headlined many times. He also was into music. Uh, he and his brother had a band, and I brought his whole band in for a week, and they were playing the song Choppin' Broccoli uh, live on stage a good three years before it appeared on Saturday Night Live and became a huge comedy cult hit. Of course, uh, depending on the age of your audience, they may not remember the name Dana Carvey or Choppin' Broccoli. But this guy worked for me all the time. We built him up uh, as an A headliner. And after a Saturday night gig, we're sitting in a jacuzzi together having drinks. And he goes, man, I just had a phone call from Lorne Michaels. And I'm flying to New York in a couple days to audition for Saturday Night Live. And, of course, the rest is famous. He got uh, Saturday Night Live, did it for a couple of years. And then uh, ended up doing movies and, and he has own movies. Oh, he, uh, Wayne's World. Come on. Working alongside Mike Myers. Yeah. You know, yeah the church woman, the church Bowl girl. Commercial together. Yeah. yeah. And what's great is Dana was one of my just regular A-room headliners. And he got the golden ticket. He got that phone call. I was with him. Um, he was both excited and a little scared and nervous. 
you know, Lorne Michaels just called me. You know, he was a god in those days. Oh, this is uh, the guy. I mean, he gave the golden ticket to Chevy Chase and Eddie Murphy. Jim Belushi, and, yeah. Jim Bel- yeah, and I mean, the and list goes on. Every famous actor. <laughs> yeah. And Saturday Night Live had just started going in the late 70s, early 80s. And so. Um, the, and this the is 86, was, right? 86 right, is right. when he joined, I believe. Yeah and, yeah. and what's amazing is he'd already been working for me for several years. And I happened to share that moment when he got the golden ticket. Uh, the same with Bob Saget and Dave Collier. They were working for me before they got full house and all of a sudden their household names. Um, you know, but I also, uh, to go back to what we were saying, I brought in famous people in the sense that I, I worked Harry Anderson, who mm-hmm. was the uh, magician on Cheers and then yep. had his own show. Judge on Night Court. Court. Uh, I Paul loved Harry was, Anderson. Yeah, he was great. Uh, and became a good friend. Uh, Pat Paulson from um, uh, who always perennial running for president was already famous. We became good friends. He came to the club as a regular um, Seinfeld. You know, here's what happens. Once you get the golden ticket, it's difficult for a room my size to get you back. Jerry did that show that he owed me, owed me. But once Dana got Saturday Night Live or um, Bob and Coulier, uh, Coulier came back and worked for me, uh, but Saget was, you know, went on the, the path of fortune. It's very difficult to get him back into uh, a club my size. Oh, but, sure. Uh, I did um, like doing concerts. I did two TV series that I produced, and I did a couple concerts, and those concerts with were with Jay Leno. And he was already a household name. Uh, it was before he got the Tonight Show, but he had done the Tonight Show several times. And Jay and I, he used to work for me when I had the club, um, became good friends. And he would come in once a year and do a concert for me. And uh, uh, he was the highest paid uh, act I ever had. I paid him uh, uh, $15,000 for one night of work. And for me, that was uh, a huge investment in risk. Um, but you know, but I'll bet he would draw seats, wouldn't he? Oh, we sold out to, uh, we had the convention center theater here in Sacramento, 2,200 seats, and we would sell it out two times in a night. Yeah. And, uh, I, I made money, yeah, but it was, it was still a big risk. I mean, if nobody had showed, I had guaranteed him 15 grand, but did you guys ever just, sorry to interrupt, but in the comedy industry, did you ever like share parts of the houses like, would you have a deal where it's like, hey, you're the main event or the headliners, so you're going to get X percentage of the house? Or was it always a, a fee per night based on your your where you are in the card? Yeah, 99% of the time, it was a contracted fee that I arranged and negotiated with the entertainment. There were a couple cases uh, where guys um, that were trying to um, build their own reputation would uh, negotiate um, part of the house deal, you know, um, get 50% of the door and then they would do their own marketing and I would keep 50% of the door to cover my nut. My profit came from selling food and drinks and they took the 50% of the door um, which was usually more than I would have contracted for. So in the in the but they also uh, not, got out know, and hustled their butt off and marketed and flyered right. and got they their were friends in charge to come of, and yeah they were in charge of bringing in the crowd they were they were taking on the responsibility of marketing. But for example, there's a great comic. He never got the golden ticket, but he's one of the best uh, road comics out there. His name's Don Friesen. He won the San Francisco comedy competition twice. He's the only guy to ever do that. And he likes promoting his own concerts. Uh, so he would uh, do house deals. 
Uh, there's another comic, Bob Duback, who's very funny, uh, produces his own shows because they feel that they not only can control, they're, ta- they're sharing that job as producer so they can control the environment or the box, as you said, that they're going to be showcased in. And if they do well, they reap some of the financial benefits. But they're taking on a bit of that, that risk as well. It's interesting, you know, in my industry, I, I didn't think of myself like this until recent years, but I kind of would do both, right? I've had a lot of speakers on, but primarily I would also act as the main talent at a seminar. So I would be the promoter to get butts and seats and to put people on and contract the hotels. But then I'm also the main teacher, speaker, you know, educator, whatever you want to say. Scott, this has been really, really fun. Um, as we wind down here, um, I want to definitely, I want to talk about your book, which I think is such a, a resource for people. Um, tell me about the the idea behind be a stand-up comic or just look like one. This is not a book about how to be funny. This is a book about how to be successful in the industry, which I know we can pull parallels into just about every industry that needs promotion. Is that true? Yes, exactly. And originally the book was called Be a Stand-Up Comic. And then somebody came out with the the same title literally uh, two months before us. And we had to shift pivot real quick. And we added or just look like one. And the concept of the book was it was written in uh, it's it's been around a little bit. It was written in the late 80s. But uh, as I mentioned, the comedy wave was so huge and people were seeing people like Robin Williams and Bob Saget and and Gary Shandling and Seinfeld getting TV shows and becoming what they thought were overnight successes. They didn't realize the years of work that people put into to quote unquote become an overnight success. Absolutely. Overnight success in a quick 15 years, right? Right, right. So my partner and I, Bob Stobner, we wrote a book called Be a Stand-Up Comic or Just Look Like One. And basically the first half of the book was telling you all the crap you'd have to go through to be a professional. And the idea was to kind of chase away some of the wannabes and take the dreamers and take them from that dream to reality. This is what the job really entails and what you're going to have to deal with. And then the second half of the book, we figured if you're still reading and you're still performing, you're serious. Okay, now this is, you got to buckle down. This is what you're going to do. And we're going to take you from an open mic or not making any money to being a feature or a headliner and maybe making several thousand dollars a night. So follow this path and we'll help you become a pro. Scott, I am, I'm going to go get my, my book right now. Guys, you can check out uh, Scott's book at st- scottscomedystuff.com. Now, I have not, I like to read books before I recommend them. I have not read yours, but I do know you. And I mean, with 21 years experience, plus all the other entrepreneur endeavors, I'm super excited. I, I really genuinely am, Scott, to dive into this. Um, because again, like I, I've done stand-up comedy classes. I, I take acting classes currently right now. Um, and I don't have any dream to be act or, you know, be a headline stand-up comic, but I know that infusing comedy, uh, bringing promotional skills, understanding, you know, headliner versus opening acts and, and networking and referrals and, and all the things you talk about in your book, understanding that is going to help me in my current business to grow and get further along. Well, you know, what's nice, you know, what's nice, Matt, is you have a connection because as soon as we get done, I'll send you a free copy of the book. (laughs) Whoa. But for everybody. Okay, I'm in. I'm in. This is exciting. Scott. But for um, everybody else, go to uh, www.scottscomedystuff.com and you'll find all the various products and my book 
that are available to uh, anybody that's interested. And even if you don't want to become a professional comic, there's uh, gems of information that will help you in sales, in management, in organization to help you follow your dream. Very well said. Scott Edwards, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I sure appreciate it. Oh, Matt, it's been great. Thank you so much, sir. Continued success. All right, guys, that's the show this week. Wow, we had a little bit of a marathon episode. I hope you uh, stuck, obviously you stuck with it because you're hearing my voice right now. But Scott Edwards, you can follow Scott on social media. You can go on LinkedIn. You can follow Scott on Facebook, of course. He's got also his comedy stuff. Let me just find that. It is... Facebook is Laughs History. Facebook.com slash Laughs History. So you see a page devoted to the laughing comedy business. But check out Scott Edwards. And then, of course, you want to grab his book. He's also got a really cool, uh, like a comedy class and a bunch of other great resources. You can find everything at scottscomedystuff.com. Thanks for listening this week. I'll be back next week with another driven entrepreneur as per usual. And I don't know how many times I can say driven in an hour, but get out there this weekend and uh, stay driven. See you next week. Bye-bye.